In December, the World Trade Organization released the dispute settlement ruling that a lot of people were dreading. The case involved former American President Donald Trump's steel and aluminum tariffs. Almost everyone who cares even a little bit about the rules-based trading system had wanted this issue to just go away. And that is because the WTO was being forced to weigh in on the extremely sensitive topic of U.S. national security. The WTO almost avoided having to rule on the issue, but not quite. In this episode, we are going to tell the story of Trump's tariffs, the dispute, and why it was clear, even from the beginning, that forcing the WTO to rule on national security was going to be a problem. Now that the legal decision is out, we will also discuss lessons for a World Trade Organization wrestling with member countries' newfound concerns over national security. To do all that, I will be joined by two very special guests. I'm Jennifer Hillman. I'm a professor at the Georgetown University Law Center. In the 1990s, Jennifer Hillman was an official at the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative. From 2007 to 2011, Jennifer was an appeals court judge as a member of the WTO's appellate body. I'm Mona Paulson. I'm an assistant professor at the LSE Law School. Mona Paulson has a PhD in international economic law. Mona is one of the world's great experts on the history of national security and trade, and she'll talk us through some of the implications of national security for the world trading system today. You are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade and policy. I'm your host, Chad Bown, the Reginald Jones Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington. Part 1. The National Security Tariffs. This story begins in the second half of the Obama administration. By then, it had become clear that the United States and other countries faced a serious problem, China and its non-market economy. China was suddenly producing over 50% of global steel and aluminum. This was up from less than a third of global capacity a decade earlier. China's expanding production also had no end in sight. The problem was that China's domestic demand for metals was slowing. It was doing less construction and infrastructure investment at home. With all that steel and aluminum capacity already built, China was exporting more and more to the rest of the world. Massive Chinese exports drove down world prices, hurting steel and aluminum companies in the United States and other countries. By the time of the Obama administration, the United States had mostly stopped direct imports from China of steel and aluminum. This was done through its use of anti-dumping and countervailing duties. But that hadn't solved the underlying problem taking place in China. Steel and aluminum are commodities. Even if the United States doesn't buy Chinese steel, China can still sell its cheap steel to countries in Europe or Canada or Korea. Europe or Canada or Korea can then use that Chinese steel at home and then sell their steel into the U.S. market since their steel was not hit with U.S. tariffs. This result was still lower steel prices in America. Good for consuming industries, bad for steel companies and their workers. 
As one last attempt to tackle the China steel production problem at its source, the U.S. helped kickstart an OECD process in 2016. And for aluminum, in the waning days of the Obama administration, the U.S. filed a formal WTO dispute against China's subsidies. Unfortunately, both of those efforts arrived too late. In November of 2016, Donald Trump was elected president of the United States. On the campaign trail, candidate Trump had given fiery speeches about what he intended to do on trade and China, including this one at a shuttered steel mill in Pennsylvania. If China does not stop its illegal activities, including its theft of American trade secrets, I will use every lawful president. Hey, look, this is very easy. This is so easy. I I love saying this. I will use every lawful presidential power to remedy trade disputes, including the application of tariffs consistent with Section 201 and 301 of the Trade Act of 1974 and Section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act of 1962. And when they say trade expansion, they're talking about other countries. They're not talking about us because there is no expansion. They get the expansion. We get the joblessness. That's the way it works. As president, Trump promised to take a different approach from his predecessors. In early 2017, less than 100 days into office, the Trump administration began with something very unusual. Here's Jennifer Hillman. In April of 2017, the Trump administration began two investigations, one on steel and one on aluminum. In each, the administration looked at the question of whether or not imports of those products were a threat to America's national security. And all of this was done under what is known as Section 232 of the Trade Expansion Act of 1962. This was weird. The law under which they were doing these investigations was an old law, but it had rarely been used. We don't know for certain why the Trump administration chose to go down this particular road of a national security case. What we do know is that it was begun at a time in which the United States trade representative, Bob Lighthizer, had not yet been confirmed. And we know also that this is a statute that is run through the Department of Commerce. And at the time, the Commerce Department secretary, Wilbur Ross, had been confirmed. If the real goal was to keep tariffs on steel and aluminum, they had other options that would have arguably been less damaging to the trading system overall than this fight over national security. This Trump decision was one of many that has turned out quite damaging to the trading system. For steel and aluminum, though, there were other, less damaging options than national security tariffs that the president could have chosen. Those included more traditional trade remedies of anti-dumping, safeguards, and countervailing duties. Separately, though, the Trump administration was also quite fed up with a different part of the WTO system, its dispute settlement procedures. The WTO had been criticizing the way the United States was using those more traditional trade remedies for more than 20 years, ruling against the United States in dozens and dozens of cases. With these new Section 232 investigations, it was almost as if President Trump was saying to the WTO, hey, if you thought those trade remedy import restrictions were bad, just wait until you see my national security tariffs. The point is, even in April 2017, 
the warning signs were already there. In early 2018, things started to heat up. In February of 2018, the Trump administration released the final results of this Section 232 investigation, and it found that imports of both steel and aluminum threatened the national security of the United States. Now, it's important to note that its finding was based on a definition of national security that's within that 232 statute that very much focuses on the economic impact of the imports and the impact on commerce. In fact, it led Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross to say that economic security is national security. And the reports recommended that the president impose measures that would reduce imports. In March of 2018, President Trump agreed that imports of steel and aluminum threatened America's national security. He also began to impose measures to reduce imports. But the way he did so was also weird. Yes, countries like China and Russia were hit with tariffs immediately, but Trump gave other special trading partners a choice. They could try to make him an offer and negotiate their way out of his tariffs. For example, a country might be able to avoid the U.S. tariffs if it accepted quotas. So if the trading partner agreed to a strict volume limit on how much steel and aluminum it would sell to the United States, for them, there would be no U.S. tariff. Countries like Argentina, Brazil, and South Korea accepted Trump's deal. The European Union, Canada, and Mexico did not. They refused the quotas. So in June of 2018, Trump hit those three with tariffs as well. Europe and Canada were especially upset because under NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, they were America's longtime military allies. The NATO allies didn't understand how their exports could be a threat to American national security. In response, many countries did two things. First, a number of them filed cases at the World Trade Organization complaining that these tariffs violated the United States' basic WTO obligations. In addition, some countries also retaliated immediately by imposing tariffs of their own on U.S. exports going into their markets. That includes China, Canada, Mexico, and the European Union. We now had two problems. By my count, countries would ultimately bring nearly 10 different WTO disputes against these Trump tariffs. But second, and importantly, even American military allies like Canada and countries in the European Union were now suddenly retaliating with their own tariffs against U.S. exports. Almost certainly these other countries were now breaking the rules as well. You cannot impose measures of your own on your own without going through the WTO or without having conducted your own investigations, and they had done neither of those. These trading partners claimed that these tariffs were not really national security tariffs, that instead they were, in fact, safeguards, which gave them the right to use this little loophole in the safeguards agreement that allowed them to retaliate immediately as a way of rebalancing the trade concessions that had made between the United States when it agreed on what its tariffs would be and these other countries that agreed on what their tariffs would be on other topics. Rebalancing trade concessions is a critical part of this story and is something we will come back to later. For now, what is important was this new problem. 
what had begun as a concern with China's excessive production of steel and aluminum had suddenly turned into a fistfight between the United States and its military allies. Trump put national security tariffs on Europe and Canada. Europe and Canada immediately retaliated against U.S. exports, and both sides of this military alliance were now probably breaking WTO rules. For the WTO, things were going from bad to worse. Over the next three years, some of those problems did slowly dissipate. To get Congress to pass his renegotiated trade deal with Canada and Mexico, Trump agreed to convert their tariffs into voluntary export restraints. Canada and Mexico stopped retaliating and pulled their WTO disputes. Then, in November 2020, Joe Biden was elected president. With Trump now out, Biden was promising to work with allies on trade. Many were hopeful. One problem, though, was that the clock was still ticking on all of those remaining WTO disputes against Trump's national security tariffs. The Biden administration would need to do something to make that problem go away. It did make progress. With the European Union, the Biden team negotiated a similar deal to what Trump had done with Canada and Mexico. Europe agreed to volume limits on its exports, and Biden removed the U.S. tariffs. Here is European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen in October 2021. And I'm also very pleased to announce that, Mr. President, you and I, we have today agreed to suspend the tariffs on steel and aluminium and to start the work on a new global sustainable steel arrangement. And this marks a milestone in uh, the renewed EU-US partnership. With this deal with Europe, one more WTO dispute had now gone away. The Biden administration then announced a similar agreement with Japan, and then one more with the United Kingdom. But unfortunately, that is where the deals end. The remaining exporting countries did not get deals. And without a settlement, those other trading partners kept pushing their WTO disputes. Until finally, in December of 2022, the WTO could not put off its decision any longer. More than four and a half years after Trump had first imposed the protection, the WTO was being forced to issue a ruling on his national security tariffs. WTO legal ruling on the U.S. national security tariffs. Understanding the WTO decision requires coming to grips with two critical parts of this dispute, the underlying legal text and the American argument. On the American argument, I asked Jennifer to explain which U.S. administration was defending the case, as well as the basics of the underlying American legal defense. The vast majority of the arguments which would occur both in written form and in lawyers from USTR appearing before this three-member panel that was hearing the case, almost all of that occurred under the Trump administration. So the major claims of all of the other parties was that the United States was violating two of the most basic principles of the GATT. The first allegation was that the United States was violating so-called most favored nation which says that you have to treat all of the members of the WTO equally. The second major claim is that the United States had agreed and had bound its tariffs at a specific level. For instance, with respect to steel, the United States had bound its tariff at a 0% duty, and therefore the imposition of a 25% tariff is violating that obligation of the United States. 
What the United States was basically saying is, we agree that we've done all of these things, but we are justified in doing that under an exception to the rules, uh, which is known as the national security defense, found in Article 21 of this General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, or the GATT. This takes us to the legal text of Article 21, the national security defense, which is the second thing that we need to understand. Under Article 21, the U.S. could have gone with any one of three potential justifications for the national security defense. It could have said the tariffs were needed, one, because they relate to nuclear material, two, because they relate to trafficking in arms or supplying a military establishment, or three, because it was during a time of war or other emergency in international relations. Of those three boxes for national security justifications, nuclear, military establishment, or an emergency in, in international relations, which did the U.S. say was its defense for its tariffs? None. What the United States basically said was, we don't have to tell you which one of the three it is. The United States throughout this entire litigation said over and over again that in the United States' view, this provision was entirely self-judging. It was up to the United States to determine what was in its essential security interests. It was up to the United States to impose measures, and it did not owe any obligation to the panel or anyone else to explain which of these three boxes its measures fell into. So throughout the litigation, the panel really did keep pushing the United States to say, we understand that you're invoking this national security defense, but the panel kept saying, we want to understand where in this national security defense does your measures fall. And while the United States kept saying again and again, this is self-judging, this is not justiciable, it finally did say that the publicly available information could be understood to relate most naturally to the circumstances described as an other emergency in international relations. Okay, not only were the U.S. tariffs a problem, but another worry was now with the American defense of its national security tariffs. The new concern was that this U.S. argument, that its Article 21 defense was self-judging, and so it therefore did not need to explain itself, could lead to other problems for the trading system. Here's Mona Paulson. All WTO members, when they sign up to be WTO members, they all agree that they're not going to decide for themselves what happens in disputes and how to resolve them. They all agree that WTO panels will figure out what to do when there's a dispute between two members. If all the WTO rules are self-judging, then that initial agreement that all governments come together and, and commit to that falls away. I think the biggest concern is whether or not other countries will follow in the United States' footsteps. I mean, what the United States was effectively saying is, if I say it's national security, you have to take my word for it, and you can't ask me any questions, and you can't ask me to tell you which part of this national security exception do I fit in. I don't have to say anything. And the concern is... What happens if everybody else does the same thing? What happens if every country decides to impose any measures and simply allege that they also contend that they are national security and that they will not provide any more 
information or answers to anyone about them. Okay, let's recap where we are. A lot of the potential WTO disputes had gone away. The U.S. had managed to settle them without requiring the WTO to rule. The countries hurt by the U.S. tariffs and that were still complaining in this WTO dispute were Norway, Switzerland, Turkey, and China. Their argument was that the U.S. broke the rules. The U.S. was not allowed to just increase its tariffs. And the U.S. was also not allowed to structure its steel and aluminum protection in a discriminatory way that would benefit some WTO members, but not others. The U.S. defense was, maybe we did those things, but if we did, we justify having done so under the national security exception, this thing called Article 21. That is our, the U.S., defense. Furthermore, no one is allowed to ask why we did it. That is for us to decide. And once we have flashed this national security card, we do not need to also explain ourselves to either the complaining parties or to the WTO. Mona, how did the WTO panel rule in this case? The panel in this dispute finds that the United States did not identify that there was an emergency in international relations and therefore it didn't meet the circumstances by which to invoke Article 21. The WTO panel did not agree with the U.S. argument that this was self-judging and non-justiciable. To explain, the panel appealed to the language in that third paragraph of Article 21. Back in 2017 and 2018, during this investigation, the United States was not involved in any wars. So in order to determine whether there was a, quote, Emergency and international relations. Again, these are the terms in Article 21. How does the panel even define what these terms mean? The way the panel determines the meaning of those terms is it looks at dictionary meanings. And in that sense, they look at this idea of the fact that an emergency in international relations must be grave or severe and at least comparable this is their language, to the gravity or severity of war in terms of how it impacts international relations. In the context of this dispute, sticking to dictionary definitions is a really good way of staying as apolitical as possible. Jennifer, how did the WTO panel ultimately get boxed into looking at dictionary meanings to figure out whether the U.S. was in an emergency in international relations? And how did this ultimately affect the panel's ruling. The panel got to this result largely because the United States chose not to defend any of the particulars of whether or not this fell in which box, and if it was in a particular box, why did it fit within that box? Because the United States stuck with its basic argument that this particular provision is self-judging and non-justiciable which means the United States fundamentally did not put up any arguments under this aspect of the national security defense. So instead, the panel keyed off of this one phrase that the United States submitted saying that these measures relate most naturally to the circumstances of an other international emergency. The panel then looked at what was on the public record that the United States had put forward, which was the 232 reports, 
and the underlying documents related to those reports. And all of those pointed to a concern over overcapacity to produce steel and aluminum, particularly coming out of China. The panel on its own looked at all of the data and the information that was in those underlying 232 reports and ultimately came to the conclusion that they did not rise to the level of showing uh, that there was, in fact, an other emergency in international relations just because there was overcapacity to produce steel and aluminum. When the report was released publicly, legal scholars responded with some pretty heavy complaints with what the WTO panel had done. There has been a fair amount of criticism of this panel report because these arguments about why there was or was not an other emergency in international relations come off as fairly weak and as the panel reaching and, in essence, making arguments, arguably on behalf of the United States, that the United States never made. So they make up to some degree a weak case on why these measures might or might not fall within this taken in a time of other emergency in international relations, and then shoot down their own argument as not being a compelling argument. The WTO was put in this impossible position of having to adjudicate a case about a member's national security, one of the most sensitive topics in the trading system. Without much to go on, the panel was forced to rely on dictionary definitions, and in a sense, it had to make the U.S. defense for it. While legal scholars found fault with the WTO panel's approach, one of the sharpest critics of the WTO ruling was, of course, the United States itself. Here is the Biden administration's U.S. Trade Representative, Catherine Tai, at the Council on Foreign Relations shortly after the WTO ruling was announced. Our position has long been that, if you just look at the text of the agreement, that uh, national security decisions that are made by governments are a source of incredible responsibility. They should not be made willy-nilly. But for the integrity of a multilateral institution like the WTO, that it should not get into the business of second-guessing the national security decisions that are made by sovereign governments. I think that the WTO is getting itself on very, very thin ice. And I I think that it really challenges the integrity of the system. It is the responsibility of governments to bring integrity to their decisions on national security. But it is a very challenging place to be to have unelected, not really accountable decision makers in Geneva second guess processes that are run through a government like ours, which is democratic, and also for a country like ours that many others look to, to defend on national security, not just for ourselves, but for others. The United States was clearly unhappy with the WTO decision. A USTR spokesperson also said that the United States will not comply with the panel report, meaning the steel and aluminum tariffs that remain are going to stay. Nevertheless, there is one potentially important thing that the United States has not yet said. That may be a silver lining. At the time of us talking, we don't know whether or not the United States will appeal the panel report. Of course, that would be appealing it to the void because there's no appellate body at the moment. That means that once the time limit for them to appeal ends, 
it's possible that some of the complainants, Norway and Switzerland in particular, could then proceed to the next phase, to arbitration, to try to focus on rebalancing of concessions or to, you know, retaliate. This could turn out to be the silver lining. If the United States does not appeal this report into the void, Norway and Switzerland could seek rebalancing. That means they would be allowed some retaliation legally based on how much exports they lost due to the original U.S. tariffs. A U.S. decision not to appeal the report might be the United States quietly supporting the role of international law. The United States would be saying that while we are not going to remove our tariffs, it is fine for Norway and Switzerland to go ahead with the rebalancing that the WTO allows. This could be a positive sign, albeit a small one, that the U.S. is okay with at least some of these key WTO rules. We'll see what happens. Part 3. The WTO National Security Ruling in Historical Context. Someday, historians may remember this December WTO legal decision as a pretty big deal. To see why, it's useful to begin with a separate Biden administration statement made after the WTO ruling. Maria Pagan, the U.S. ambassador to the World Trade Organization in Geneva, said to the WTO membership that, quote, I wish to remind members the negotiating history of Article 21B confirms the drafters intended this provision to be self-judging and that the available remedy for such measures is a non-violation claim, end quote. We'll turn to that last part, the non-violation claim part momentarily. But first, Mona, you're a legal historian. According to your research, did the drafters of the legal text in the 1940s intend for Article 21 to be entirely self-judging? The drafters never intended for Article 21 to be entirely self-judging. Well, what's really important to understand here is that context is everything. Throughout the discussions, and in particular through the internal deliberations from the United States, the key architect of the security exceptions, it's clear that that was a really complicated question. There were debates within the U.S., particularly between the Defense Department and the State Department that was responsible for negotiating these trade rules. Ultimately, U.S. internal documents do confirm that while the necessity of the actions taken was something that a government would decide for itself, that us understanding the relationship between the actions taken and the situation at issue, like an emergency in international relations, would be subject to review. At the time, the part of the U.S. government that ultimately drafted the international rules was not fully on board with this self-judging non-justiciable argument. The big question is why? In the 1940s, why did even the United States want to allow some form of international dispute settlement to be able to review actions taken during an emergency in international relations? The U.S. was really concerned about other governments using the security exceptions for political interests. And that's what you see. You see India arguing, well, what if there's a political crisis at home? And so that's why they keep emphasizing this idea of legitimate, real security interests to be an issue. Because at the time, and I think this is really important, they're worried about checking economic warfare. They're worried about checking future economic retaliation. Mona's research here is incredibly important. 
The United States in the international trading system was coming off the disaster of the 1930s. There was the U.S. Smoot-Hawley tariffs and trading partner retaliation. There was the Great Depression and Second World War. When the State Department was drafting rules for the new system in the late 1940s, the United States was worried the world might repeat those same mistakes. Countries might impose new trade barriers for political reasons and then try to get out of the consequences by justifying the barriers on the grounds of national security. Fear of imitation was one worry, but Mona is pointing to a separate concern. If there was no international review, the retaliatory response by trading partners, and we know that there would be one, might itself then go unchecked. This goes back to the rebalancing argument we mentioned briefly before. A hugely underappreciated part of the ultimate dispute settlement system is not only that it allows for retaliation or rebalancing, but that same system also serves to provide a check, a limit on the size of that retaliation. The drafters in the 1940s hoped that an authorized but limited retaliation that allowed for rebalancing would prevent the sort of tit-for-tat behavior, escalation, and spiraling trade tensions that ultimately resulted in the economic warfare of the previous decade. They wanted to stop history from repeating itself. How would the drafters' new rules work in practice? Well, in the decades since the 1940s, there were just not a lot of cases where countries invoked this Article 21 defense. National security concerns did come up in the 1980s during disputes between Britain and Argentina over the Falklands War, or when the United States and Nicaragua were fighting in Central America. And then also in the 1990s, when the United States and Europe had a disagreement over the Americans' treatment of Cuba. But even then, the disputes were withdrawn or settled diplomatically before the WTO was forced to rule on whether national security was a legitimate defense for any given country's trade barriers. For nearly 70 years, countries did an amazing job of protecting the multilateral trading system from this no-win issue. Then, in 2014, Russia invaded Ukraine. Russia imposed trade restrictions, Ukraine brought a WTO dispute, and Russia defended its trade policy under the Article 21 national security exception. Finally, in May of 2019, the WTO could avoid the issue no longer. A panel was forced to provide the WTO's first-ever dispute settlement ruling on national security. From today's perspective, it was the U.S. legal position in that Russian dispute that is super interesting. It's not until 2019 that we have an official WTO panel report with respect to the interpretation of Article 21 of the GATT. So that's a really long time. And that rises out of the Russian invasion and subsequent annexation of Crimea. What we then begin to see from this dispute between Russia and Ukraine and the report is that the United States now is consistent in maintaining that Article 21 is entirely self-judging. And that's a different position than some of the other third parties, like the EU, Canada, other governments that are taking the position that it's, Article 21 is not wholly self-judging. Now, the United States was definitely not siding with Russia in its 2014 invasion of Ukraine and annexation of Crimea, 
Back then, the United States did impose a ton of sanctions on Russia in response. That's not an issue. Where the United States is aligned with Russia is on this 2019 WTO dispute. There, the Americans argued that when a country like Russia invokes the Article 21 defense, the WTO litigation should then stop. And that is essentially the U.S. defense and argument today. So in recent times, across the Trump and Biden administrations, on this national security issue, the United States is at least being consistent. Non-violation complaints and a different approach to national security and WTO dispute settlement. Today, we are at a crossroads. The steel and aluminum dispute shows there's a fundamental disagreement between WTO member countries and WTO panels about the meaning of Article 21 and national security. But even aside from that, consider how the world has changed in the four short years since those WTO disputes were first launched. Russia has once again invaded Ukraine, and there's already been nearly a year of brutal war in Europe. China has developed an increasingly hostile foreign policy. China implemented a new national security law curtailing Hong Kong's democracy. China has ramped up military exercises around Taiwan and toward its other neighbors. There are increasing concerns about a Chinese invasion. The WTO has received even more formal disputes involving national security. This issue of national security is clearly not going away. To help, we wanted to investigate this idea of a non-violation complaint, the one that U.S. Ambassador Maria Pagan referred to earlier. Now, though countries have rarely made non-violation complaints in formal dispute settlement, the idea that they could has been there since the GATS beginnings. I asked Jennifer to explain what a non-violation complaint is in theory and how it might be put to work here in response to an Article 21 national security type of dispute. So the concept here and the way that this would work would be that there would be an understanding that when a member invokes this national security exception, Article 21, the WTO system in essence does what the United States has basically been arguing for, which is to stop having any more litigation. And instead, you would immediately assume a non-violation has occurred and you would immediately begin the process of rebalancing without actually asking a panel to rule one way or another on whether the national security defense was effectively invoked. You would not have any rulings to that effect. You would just have an automatic understanding that whenever Article 21 is invoked, the next step is to simply rebalance the concessions. Again, suppose this non-violation claim had been used in the U.S. national security tariffs WTO dispute. The idea is that even if there were no explicit WTO rules being broken, the United States did take away some legitimate economic benefits that other countries like Norway or Switzerland were expecting under the agreement. Even if there was no wrongdoing, those countries deserve rebalancing as compensation. Okay, Let's run through some of the pros and cons of such a non-violation complaint approach. 
maybe starting with the benefits. So first and foremost, the benefit for the WTO as a system is it doesn't have to make these very difficult rulings on national security, which always will put it between a rock and a hard place. Because if it rules, as it did in this instance, in favor of those complaining about the U.S.'s national security tariffs, the United States responds the way it did. I'm not going to comply. You can't judge my national security. And if, on the other hand, it rules in favor of the national security complaints, it invites many other trading partners to consistently impose measures and claim that they are in the name of national security. The second thing it really does is that it can be done very quickly. It won't take the two or three or four years of litigation before a WTO panel that it would take to go through a full defense. It does mean that you will not just, in Catherine Tai's words, willy-nilly start invoking national security all the time because you know that you will have to pay for it in the form of this rebalancing. And so invoking the national security defense is not free. It's available. You don't have to go through litigation, but it's not free. And therefore, in theory, that is a deterrent on using it unless and until you really need to. Another benefit involves something Mona said earlier about what the drafters in the 1940s wanted for the system. The focus on rebalancing also creates a check, a limit on the retaliation that the complaining government will be allowed. If adopted today, this sort of approach would keep the issue within the WTO and its basic rules. There would be retaliation, but it would be limited, and it would solve the problem of this dispute once and for all. No further escalation. And that is arguably better than the alternative, which is that the complaining government retaliates unchecked and unilaterally. That leads to escalation, further retaliation, economic warfare, and a more serious breakdown of international relations. As we try to help the trading system dispose of potential national security cases, what are some of the costs or, or downsides of using this non-violation approach? The downside of not going through the process is that there is no international scrutiny. There's no one judging whether or not this really did fall on the national security side of the line or whether it really was just blatant protectionism. You also will clearly still have the problem of how much is this rebalancing? Uh, how much was it worth to a country to engage in trade in steel and aluminum with the United States? How much did these tariffs harm that trade? Therefore, how much should the rebalancing be? That is a process that the WTO does normally through an arbitration. And oftentimes we've seen in past cases where the parties are wildly different in terms of their sense of the value of a case. Finally, not only is the technical process of calculating rebalancing sometimes hard and why you can get these wildly different estimates between the two parties, but oftentimes the result means tariff retaliation. That too is not free. In the retaliating country, the result is new costs on consumers and consuming industries even if there are some benefits to newly protected producers. This is also not a particularly useful remedy when the complainant is a small country that might not have a lot of imports over which to retaliate. Overall, this alternative of a non-violation approach does have a lot of upside. It may be a considerable improvement over the status quo. Nevertheless, 
it is still imperfect. Part 5. What did we learn? As we wrap up this episode, I want to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. Mona, let's start with you. What have we learned? Why is this national security issue turning out so hard for today's World Trade Organization and its dispute settlement system? You have to kind of separate those specific circumstances, like the Russia invasion of Ukraine, right? Those are clear circumstances. Another country invaded another country. The system can probably withstand a dispute about that because it's a very clear time of war. The other problem of it and what we're seeing is that there is a lot of discussion about the U.S. invocation of security because it is inevitably putting security on the table as part of its climate policy, as part of its economic policy. And I think that's the U.S. position right now is like, I'm sorry, you know, if this is paper, rock, scissors, security covers, you know, trade. And to that extent, everyone keeps saying, no, no, U.S., you're wrong. You can't do that. That's a way to deviate from the rules. You know, we can't just say, okay, the, the, the WTO rules are meaningless because security is on the table. But what can the U.S. do if all there is is a security exception? Jennifer, as my last question for you, I wanted to ask why you think the world is so upset with what has happened with this December WTO ruling. In some sense, the experts have been warning us from the very beginning, way back in 2017, that if the dispute ever got to a WTO ruling like it has today, this was going to be really bad news for the multilateral trading system. Here we are, and they were right. But why are people surprised by all this? To me, there's two basic reasons why I think many in the world are very upset with the Biden administration's response to this decision. First is, I think a lot of the world was really hoping, fingers crossed, that when the Biden administration came in, that they were going to change their position, particularly with respect to the issue of the dispute settlement system at the WTO, and that they were going to be very engaged in thinking about how to reform the WTO appellate body so that it met a lot of the concerns that have been raised for many years, and at the same time would engage in a process to get it back in, in a reformed way, but nonetheless back on track. And the moment the United States came out and said, we will not comply with this decision, many in the world, uh, those, those hopes, I think, were very much dashed. The other is, I think the rest of the world is hearing the Biden administration say in so many other contexts that the Biden administration wants to promote the rule of law particularly when you think about it in the context of what it's doing vis-a-vis China and absolutely with respect to what's happening with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, The United States is consistently among those saying we need to hold Russia to account for the atrocities and the war crimes and the repeated violations of international norms that is occurring throughout the world. And yet here is the United States, in this instance, violating international norms itself. It is saying to the WTO, we don't care what you say. We don't care that you found that we're in violation. We're not going to comply, even though we have obligations that we recognize. How do you think the Biden administration might respond to that? 
I think this decision in part needs to be put in context because of the national security nature of it. And I think there are many in the world that do understand, and especially the Biden administration, that when it comes to national security, there has to be some safe space to say all bets are off. And we've obviously seen a sea change, even in the last three or four years, of how we think about national security and how we think about what is a legitimate response to national security concerns. Part of that, I think, is a clear understanding by the Biden administration, rightfully so, that the WTO rules are simply no longer fit for purpose. It's not just in the national security area, but that's one of them. You have a WTO that hasn't figured out how to take on board what are the 21st century problems. How do the trading rules contribute affirmatively to solving climate change, to dealing with global health problems, to addressing the incredible amounts of inequality, on and on. So at some level, the Biden administration's basic message is the WTO and its rules are not working. So why should we? comply with the ruling in this case? Why should we continue to engage in this dispute settlement system that is designed to enforce rules that are themselves outdated? And at the same time, it is very difficult to change the rules of the WTO. It requires a consensus, which means unanimity And it is proving incredibly difficult when among those countries are countries that are as different as the United States and China in their approach to all things economic and national security to come up with any kind of new rules that would be acceptable to 164 countries. So some of this response is a clear expression of frustration on the part of the Biden administration with failures of the WTO to modernize both its rules and its dispute settlement system. My last question for you, Mona, also ties into that. What's your big takeaway from all the reaction around these recent national security disputes? And maybe what can policymakers try to do about it? My big concern of thinking through some of these recent disputes with the United States and the the panel reports with respect to the tariffs on steel and aluminum is that we're going to have the U.S. just completely lose faith in WTO dispute settlement. And we're seeing that increasingly in many ways, not just with the way that the panel interpreted essential security interests in Article 21, but it builds on that. And whatever solutions we try to come up with isn't going to take that away. Um, What we can do is try to think about how to deal with the system in crisis, now that we know all that we know in looking through the system, what can we do to make it better? And so we've seen the U.S. in some of its press releases talk about an interest in reform. And so I really would love to bring in some of the United States concerns to address some of these realities that we're dealing with in the globalized economy that clearly are not working within the way the rules work. And so we need to think of a way to bring the U.S. back to the table and deal with that, because clearly going through the dispute settlement mechanism, this is a problem, and it's only going to get worse if we don't address it. Jennifer, Mona, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's always good to talk to you. 
To conclude this episode, let me make two other points. First, another thing that's been gnawing at me is that the 2018 steel tariffs were just a bad test case for national security. Steel has a terrible reputation in the United States as being a complainer, a swing state anomaly, a protection recidivist, a sensitive industry in trade speak. For U.S. policymakers, an important reminder is that, aside from all the other legal options for protection that we talked about today, safeguards, anti-dumping, countervailing duties, the United States always, always has one other thing it could do if it needs to protect its steel industry legally under the WTO's own rules. That is called Article 28, Modification of Schedules. At any time and for any reason, the United States can tell the WTO membership that it is going to increase its tariffs and not have to explain why. All the United States needs to do is to negotiate compensation with affected trading partners seeking to then rebalance trade concessions under Article 28. The legal provision is there. It too has rarely been used, but maybe it should be used more. If the Trump administration had used Article 28 back in 2017, this particular drama over national security could have been avoided. The second point, though, is that the world has seriously changed since 2017. National security today is suddenly a much bigger deal. There will now be times when there are no other options aside from that defense. In those instances, maybe the non-violation complaint approach that we described earlier can help. But what I also take away from some of Mona's new research is that the system would benefit from countries coming to the table and talking about some new rules. They need to start somewhere, and in the words of one of Mona's new papers, even if, as a starting point, that means they agree to disagree. And that is all for Trade Talks. A huge thanks to Jennifer Hillman at Georgetown University Law Center and Mona Paulson at LSE Law School. I'm going to post on the episode webpage a link to a bunch of their research on this topic of national security and the WTO. Thanks to Melina Kalb, our supervising producer. As always, thanks to Colin Warren, our audio guy. Do follow us on Twitter or Mastodon. We are on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to amazing trade lawyers explaining national security and the WTO, two is better than one.